from Sumat experience. That, that, that's just a norm in our culture. Um, Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame, of course, is famous for uh, having all these metrics to, to measure consumer experience of their various services. And, and in Melbourne, as, as, and perhaps in Hawthorne especially, uh, measuring consumer experience is, is a high cultural value. We do it everything from software upgrades through to cafes, don't we? We almost do it subconsciously now. Um, there's actually websites uh, uh, where you can grade your worship experience as you go to a Melbourne church. So you can, you can rate the sermons and the hymns and the, I guess you can rate the Holy Spirit. You can, you can, you can rate whatever's going on in the actual, and that, that, that comes up publicly as a well for other people to assess churches by. Now, look, there is a good side to this. There is a good side to this. We know from the Old Testament and the New Testament teaching that we're called to bring our personal best to God in worship. And okay, we, 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 can, we can measure that. We should assess our teaching. We should assess our music and our prayers, asking the question, do they reflect God's priorities for us? And in mission, of course, there's a good thing as well. It's, it's worthwhile being aware of what is working to reach people in the particular culture that we are in now because the culture expects certain standards uh, in, in technology or maybe in the type of food that we serve after services or the levels of hospitality or and particularly at the moment levels of hygiene so that people feel safe to come into a public worship space as part of our mission we, we need to be aware of those things but the bad side of course of the consumer mindset is who is being served in the worship service Who is at the centre of the worship? In the, communa, in the consumer mindset, the danger, of course, is that um, we <laughs> are being served and we, are in, in a sense, become the object of worship. And I think for the idolatries that we practised in Melbourne, that's generally the case. We bend things around ourselves. We are the thing that is served. And I, I saw this in myself every time I was required to be at a service in the cathedral. I had a little mental checklist. I'd be, I'd be sitting there grumbling during the service because they're normally two hours long and I'd be sitting there up in the stalls going, I'm sure there was a heresy in the fourth line of that hymn. The service is too long for contemporary people. Why are we still wandering around in winter English robes in the middle of an Australian summer? And don't get me started about the sermon. Now, it took me years to realise what I was doing and how deeply I needed to repent of that attitude. I was sitting there grumbling. I was like the people in the book of Numbers. I was making the service about me and about my felt needs and about my preferences. So you know what I have to do now when I go to a service at the cathedral? I have to pray, Lord, please help me to worship you because this is about you, and it's not about me. Now, it, we, it's literally in the language of the Bible, in, in, in both Hebrew and Greek, and even in the Aramaic there we've got in, in Daniel. To worship means to serve, literally. And we get that in the English word, don't we? To worship means to give someone his worth. We're giving God his worth. Now, in Psalm 95, which David has just read for us, we have this 
most powerful privilege as the people of God to access God in worship. We're so used to that, we forget how radical that is. We really, really do. I, I remember we were over at the cricket and we used to have these Tuesday things just before they had the Tuesday practice where we'd, we'd have the Christians sit around in a circle and pray. And, and for a few weeks there, we, had, we were surrounded by uh, Hindus and, and Muslims and Buddhists who were passing us prayer points. And quite literally, we taught them more theology in that 10 minutes of prayer before their practice time than we could have spent, we could have taught them in hours of conversation. Because we just pray as we normally do as Christians. We have access to the throne of grace, so we just bowl straight in. Hey, God, look, this is a request. Um, you know, Asif wants us to pray for this particular thing. Let, let's pray for that. And of course, I love God's sense of humor. The prayers got answered within the next week. And so then, you know, the, what happens the week after that, we'd be getting gifts of tea and chocolate because <laughs> Rosewater turned up in here at one occasion. I didn't tell the Archbishop about that one because somebody wanted to offer a sacrifice to Jesus. But they would come up to us before the matches and go, so you can just, you can just pray to your God like you're having a conversation with me? Yes, why? But because of the sacrifice of Jesus for us on the... On the cross. You, you mean you're not just sitting around like we do in temple, watching the gods do what they do and talking to each other because the gods are kind of inaccessible? Or It was amazing. We get so used to the fact that we have access to God in worship. And, and this psalm welcomes us into worship, but also warns us about the true nature of what we're actually doing right now. Uh, now, you need to know this. The Hebrews sung Psalm 95, and they still sing it every Sabbath Eve because it's an invitation into the worship of God in the, for the Shabbat. So all the synagogues of the Dysphoria were, were, were doing that. And, and Christians, from, from the earliest times, uh, we have used this uh, psalm in, in worship to introduce our services. In Latin, it's called Venete, O Come. Uh, it, the Anglican prayer book, the, the, the major service in our Anglican prayer book for centuries was the service of morning prayer. Crack open a prayer book, look at what is the first thing that happens in the service of morning prayer. You stand together and you say this psalm. So what have we been invited into by this scripture? Three things, I think. Passion and joy, not dead ritual. Humility and obedience, not hypocrisy, and urgent reverence. This urgent, urgent reverence. Don't delay. Don't disbelieve. So let's look at that, the passion and the joy. Can we say this passage out loud again together? Let's say it together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is a great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Now, 
other psalms. Other psalms, uh, we, we know from other psalms, we can begin worship in different ways. We can begin worship in silence. We, we can begin worship with tears and lament, like in, in Psalm 88. But the invitational psalms that happen in the Psalter, and there's uh, three of them, uh, which invite us explicitly to come to worship together, they expect noise. They expect it to be really, really rowdy when you come to church. They expect roaring. And the reason they expect that is they expect us to encourage each other with our, our raised voices, our raised hearts, our raised hands, uh, with, with, with our bodies, lying prone even before the Lord in this psalm. Make a noise to God in praise. Now, why? And I ask why, because in biblical worship, you use your mind. Biblical worship is intelligent. Yes, it wants us to be enthusiastic, but it, it requires we worship with our minds. We're not going into some uh, trance. We're not going into some dervish world. Um, <laughs> we're, we're actually bringing our minds to bear on this. And so the psalm gives us two reasons for why we worship. And for our culture, they're really interesting reasons. First of all, it says, we praise God because of creation. The God we worship holds uh, the heights and the depths of everything we experience. His power is immense. Even the sea, and now that, the significance of that is in the ancient Near East, that the sea represented primordial chaos. Uh, for many of the gods, the sea was older than them, and the sea was the great threat to them. But not in this psalm. The sea is the Lord's. Why? Because he made it. No other comment. And the second reason the psalm gives us for worshipping the Lord is redemption. Uh, there's a tenderness here. The God who is beyond creation has a people. He pastors a flock under his care. Isn't that extraordinary? Why do we roar in praise? Or literally in verse 6 there, lie down in prone worship because of both the greatness and the tenderness of God. Now, and this is a real struggle in our contemporary world. I remember uh, quite a few years ago now reading Richard Dawkins' book, The, the God Delusion, and uh, there's a part of the book where he admits to himself that he could believe in the God that science points to, the intelligence that is suggested by creation. But what he cannot believe in is a God who would be involved in the daily lives of ordinary people. That just seems like too small a job for God to do. But look at this in this psalm. For all the Sabbaths and services of millennia, that is precisely why the people of God sing out in loud praise. This God is so powerful, he's able to be both God beyond us and God with us. See, he is both the king of creation and the shepherd of his flock. Or to use the language of the theologians, he is both transcendent and he is imminent. He is majestic beyond words and humble beyond comprehension. Therefore, passion, joy, this God is worthy of our praise and not dead ritual. But also humility and obedience without hypocrisy. So let's say the second part of the psalm together. Together. Today, 
if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, there, there are two crises in the time of Moses that form the backbone of the warning about worship in this psalm. There was that early crisis at a Rephidim. Uh, we, we get the reference to it in Exodus 17. Um, it was about water in the desert. That there was no, you know, what have you brought us out here now so that we and our children and our herds will die of thirst? And, and, and there's the command that, that Moses take uh, the, the staff that he'd, he'd used uh, during the Exodus and strike, uh, strike a rock in the desert there at Rephidim and, and, and the water would come out. And uh, that was, uh, the word massa means time of dispute, time of, of quarreling. Uh, but, but then, of course, there's the same event repeats itself much, much later in the Exodus experience uh, at Kadesh. And, and it, it's this particular incident that actually bars Moses from entering the promised land as well. Uh, again, it's about water. Again, it's about striking a rock. But this time Moses stands up and says, you know, shall I strike this rock that water may come out of it? You know, a, a, as a rebuke to the people, but also as a... He wasn't just doing what God had asked him to do. He, he's kind of adding to it. So he strikes the rock, the water comes out, and God says, well... I can't, you're not going in the promised land now, Moses. So, uh, for, there were 10 rebellions in the wilderness, and, and, and the psalm uses these two uh, about uh, the water coming from rocks to kind of summarize that. Now, what's so interesting, I think, is that we, we think about the wilderness wanderings as being a test for the people, but what the psalm says, and in fact what Exodus and what Numbers uh, says, where, where those events are recorded, is that it was actually a test of God. How is it a test of God? How are the people testing God in this way? Well, uh, they refuse to trust his word despite the evidence of his existence and his goodness towards them, despite the evidence of uh, his power over, nation, uh, over nature, uh, his tenderness in being near them as he's rescued them from Egypt, as he's sustained them in their wanderings in the wilderness. And the sign of this lack of trust in God, despite all the evidence, is they grumble. And then they kind of rebel. I mean, Moses says at one point, I think they're ready to stone me. You've got to do something here, God. You know, talk about a tough leadership gig. Why is this a test of God? Because it's hard work for God. It's striving for God. He's striving with these people uh, he disciplines them, they, they will not enter the land, but he continues to show them mercy. He persists with them, he sustains them, his presence is with them so that their children will go on to inherit the promised land. Now, uh, the, the new atheism in our city uh, has picked up a phrase which I think actually came from the Christian Puritans in about the 16th century. And the phrase is practical atheism. And what they mean by it is that we call ourselves believer, but in our words and actions, we're saying otherwise. And the Psalms, the, the prophets, the law, and the Gospels say 
that we are prone to living as if God isn't a reality in our lives. We disbelieve. We don't trust God despite the evidence. We take matters into our own hands uh, despite the data. We spin the data. Um, I, I can't tell you how many times I run into this as a, as a pastor. When people find out that you're a pastor, they'll say something like, if I saw a miracle, then I would believe. Most of the time I let them go through to the keeper. Sometimes I get rude because, I don't know, I'm tired. And I say, yeah, no, you wouldn't. And they look at me and I go, mate, do you know how unlikely it is that we're standing here having this conversation today? You've already had about 400 miracles put in front of your face just by the mere fact that you're here and you're not believing. Um... And you don't know, there's long, long records of God's works with people throughout history in the Bible, but you just choose to discount it. Because basically people with hard hearts in the past, they can have all the evidence for God that they could possibly want, put smack bang in front of them. And what they did was they grumbled, they rebelled, they lived as practical atheists. Why? Because they wanted to write the script of their own lives. They wanted God to be serving them, you see. They didn't want to radically entrust their lives to God. How powerful are those grumbling words? A sign of disbelief. I mean, yes, they're thirsty. They're in the desert, for goodness sake. It's inherently unlikely. that. But then again, everything that brought them into the desert was inherently unlikely anyway. If only they could have been silent before him and just waited for him to act. The ente, oh come into worship, means to come into that with trust, you see, and not disbelief. So there's worship, there's passion with joy, there's humility and obedience, and there's this urgent reverence in the psalm. Today, if you hear his voice, uh, for the psalmist, the events in Moses' day are not ancient history. They're our history. And those events are words of God to us now. Today, this is urgent. Now, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, a thousand years after this psalm uh, was written, applies the same principles of this psalm. And says, the people in Moses' day had the good news preached to them, just as we have had the good news preached to us. They saw the signs, they had the wonders, but they did not receive these gifts by trusting what they'd said about God. And so God kept them from rest. He kept them from entering the promised land. Now what this psalm says, and the timing of this psalm is so interesting because the psalm was written after the people of God had entered the promised land. So in in some sense, they have their rest. And yet the psalmist still says, today you you may be prevented from entering the rest of God. And what Hebrews points out is that the psalm is plugging into the big theme of Sabbath right throughout the scriptures. Right there in Genesis 2. God rested. We've we've had God striving. We've had God working in the psalm. But here's the rest of God as well. Eden was a place where God and humanity could rest together. 
and the land was only a sign of resting with God. And the rest that Christ has won for us, the King of creation and the shepherd of his people in the sacrifice of his cross, enables us to rest with God. You know the story, don't you, from Genesis 2 in Eden. Genesis 3, there's a cherubim set there with a flaming sword. You cannot get back into the garden. You cannot get back into the rest of God or you die. Because the sword of judgment is there, keeping people away from the presence of God. But the death has been died, you see. The death of the Son of God is what? bore the sword of God's justice so we could enter back into that rest. There's the gift in the imagery of Genesis 2 and 3. And that's why the church has used this psalm as a welcome and as a warning as we come into worship. Because we've actually got much more than our forebears had. They had the Passover lamb slain so that the angel of death would pass over the Israelite households. We have the lamb of God himself, the slain son of God himself, a greater revelation, a greater sacrifice once and for all time, the fulfillment of all God's promises so that we may enter into life, we may enter into rest, we may enter into the presence of God. We may sit in a cranky old hall with a bunch of people surrounding us, praying in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we are entering into the rest that is one for us. And we're bold to come before the throne because we have this sacrifice, we have this great high priest who's there interceding for us and allowing us into the very presence of God himself. So today, today, do not harden your hearts as our forefathers did who tested me, though they had seen my works and such works had they seen and such works have we seen now under the new covenant. During the week, I was, I, I was actually trembling at the thought of what our worship would look like if we took up the invitation of this psalm. Passion and joy, humility and obedience, urgent reverence, this, this energy, noise, this, this, this life that goes on in this psalm. Because none of us are consumers of worship. We are bringers of worship. We bring to God a sacrifice of praise and joy and movement and changed lives and humility and waiting and expectation. And what will this year be like as we go on together deeper into worship like that? Are you ready for it? <laughs> I think that's what the Lord wants from us. That's what he's inviting us to. Let me finish with the application that the writer of the letter of the Hebrews gives as he's finished explaining this psalm, this Psalm 95. He says this in chapter 4. For the word of God, and he's referring to the psalm, 
is alive and it's active, it's sharper than at any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom, to whom we must give account. And therefore, since we have, a great high priest who has ascended into heaven. Since we have Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy with our weaknesses, because he's a shepherd, you see. He's a shepherd of the flock, as well as the king of all creation. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. O oh, come, let us worship. Let's pray. Lord, please allow me to worship you in truth, with passion, in reverence, with obedience. Amen.